Hey friends, just a few things before we get started with the show. In case you haven't yet, follow the podcast on Instagram at NevermindWhoListens. Also, if you love the show and the Instagram content, I hope you'll consider supporting what I'm doing, um, and you'll also have the opportunity for exclusive content on Patreon. And it's patreon.com slash N-M-W-L for Nevermind Who Listens. There's some pretty neat benefits to patronage, including access to a secret playlist that I've developed over the past couple years, um, opportunities for shout-outs, and even uh, an opportunity to contribute to social media posts such as the Shredding Sunday and Throwback Thursday music posts that happen weekly. I hope you'll consider contributing. For $5 a month, you can help reach uh, goals that I've set, with the first goal being $50 a month from all of you, which will unlock my ability to provide you all with merchandise. If you like stickers or t-shirts, consider becoming a patron, and especially if you enjoy the content, I hope you'll consider contributing. Never Mind Who Listens is a podcast grounded in music, music discussion, music therapy, philosophy, and psychology, sometimes separate and sometimes together in conversation. Here's something new. Part of the reason I even started this podcast was because I'd started writing a workbook for new music therapists fresh out of internship, fresh with their credentials, and I realized that I loved writing more than I thought I did. And then I realized that I love talking even more than that. Um, Some of that comes through uh, my supervision that I have with students and other music therapists. And if you've ever had supervision with me, you know I can get a little bit long-winded. All that to say, I I really enjoyed interviewing these friends and colleagues of mine for episode 3 and the In Conversation episode. And I plan on continuing that series. Also... The flexibility of my format here on the show allows for these little mini-series within seasons, and I have the following in mind. So you've noticed that the title of this episode is Anatomy of a Song, and that's because I'm starting a series on lyric analysis. Another series I'd like to start highlights songwriters and artists, in which I'll interview those said artists, and it's going to be called With the artist. And like I mentioned before, I'm going to continue the In Conversation series. And all this I'd like to continue while creating the typical blog type posts where I speak on things that interest me, much like the Connections episode uh, previous to this one. For this series in lyric analysis, one of my goals is to balance the clinical with conversation and exploration of possible meaning within chosen music. I want music therapists, musicians, and non-musicians to take away something from each episode in the series. One of the more overarching goals is to elevate the way you listen to music, more so for the non-musicians and new musicians. I'll take music that's familiar and possibly unfamiliar and present to you the writer's intent, if I can find that information then I'd like to give you my take on it and ultimately share with you ways I might use that song clinically. I hope this addition to the podcast is meaningful for you. It felt right to include, and it seems to fit within the scope of what I aim to accomplish by creating it. So, here's the first installment of Anatomy of a Song featuring Creep. 
by Radiohead. Note, if you're not familiar with the music, it may be helpful for you to give the lyrics a review before listening. Um, There will be a recording later in this episode uh, of the song, um, and also, please don't look at lyrics while you're driving. Everyone loves a good cover, and this is one of the most covered songs across genres that first comes to my mind. It's been in countless movies, covered by metal and folk artists alike, and it's been parodied time and time again. It's a song with what seems to be limited clinical applications, but I've chosen to discuss it in this first installment of Anatomy of a Song because of how effective it can be in talking about perspective shifts, particularly for individuals with eating disorders, and there's some level of cross-discussion about substance use disorders and self-harm. It's an anthem for some who grew up in the 90s and speaks across generations to those feeling outcasted and possibly overlooked and rejected. The initial takeaway most have for the song is that of the outcast, and that's similar to what Tom York said about the meaning of the song for him personally after writing it, though the imagery he describes of the drunken man following a woman is not in line with his comments on male sensitivity, and I don't really get that from the song itself. But anyway, specifically he said this, quote, I have a real problem being a man in the 90s. Any man with any sensitivity or conscience toward the opposite sex would have a problem. To actually assert yourself in a masculine way without looking like you're in a hard rock band is a very difficult thing to do. It comes back to the music we write, which is not effeminate, but it's not brutal in its arrogance. It's one of the things I'm always trying, to assert a sexual persona and on the other hand, trying desperately to negate it. End quote. The song is the tale of an inebriated man who tries to get the attention of a woman to whom he's attracted by following her around. In the end, he lacks the self-confidence to face her. So it goes a little deeper than just being outcasted. Social media influence is another possible cultural relevance on which this song could be associated. If we assign those drunk with power, particularly the power of wealth and knowledge of personal information, of masses of people, who's to say the creep isn't that entity moving an agenda forward? The agenda, of course, being planned by the highest bidder. And what about those drunk on the attention gotten from their followers? There's a subreddit I recently found on Reddit titled Instagram Reality, which shows a photo of a current Instagram influencer before they became an influencer, side-by-side with a current photo of them from their Instagram. The difference sometimes is it's almost unbelievable, and it's absolutely shocking. It, it, It really doesn't look like the same person, and it's my hope that The folks in these photos and the the people running these accounts find some happiness outside of social media, but it's hard to look past that that is their life and where they find happiness or what an iteration of happiness. At what point does someone in that situation stop living their life for their own enjoyment and start allowing others to dictate their levels of happiness? What happens when the follower count starts to drop? and the engagement bottoms out. Is that person left with the shell of what they created and no connection to who they were? 
having to start over? Or is that person able to completely reconnect with the person they were before they allowed people they didn't know to shape their reality? It's an important series of questions, as it is a reality for people who give their self to others. Are these individuals inebriated to some degree? If we define inebriated by blurred perceptions of reality and decrease the shelf life of gratification in this instant gratification culture connected by the internet across the world, then I think we could call some of these folks inebriated. Like the point of view from which York is writing in Creep, the influencer could very well be such, vying for attention and feeling worthless when rejected. In some other ways, the song is about media influence because of York's intent in conveying the negative treatment of men who are aware of theirs and others' feelings and are sensitive to those feelings. Pop culture has always celebrated the masculine figurehead, and not just currently. Myths and stories across time focus on the hero and heroine dynamic, mostly because this is what plays out in our own psychological development. These dynamics are archetypal, and the balance between them speaks to, among other things, your response to fear or the dragon. These stories, night and damsel, anima and animus, replay over and over across generations and decades. The turmoil and cultural change, if viewed through the lens of these archetypes, can almost be fortune-telling. At the very least, it can help us to determine what we need in an unbiased way, but only if we are truly honest with ourselves and others. The male finds that he needs to be masculine or to be the hero in order to win over the female of the story. Now granted, that's not how day-to-day life plays out, but that story is deeply rooted within our development, and it's important for men to understand their masculinity and how they reflect it. The same is true for women and their femininity. I highly suggest reading the works of Robert A. Johnson on this subject. He's a Jungian-trained analyst, and um, these two books specifically I suggest for psychological development and this anima versus animus. She, Understanding Feminine Psychology, and He, Understanding Masculine Psychology. In these books, he uses myths to talk about psychological development in ways from which laymen and clinicians alike can benefit. Now, aside from that, I'll also suggest his work entitled Owning Your Own Shadow, as it legitimately changed the course of my life when I was in college. I also recommend Jordan B. Peterson and his many, many lectures on YouTube. The man is brilliant. He's a little controversial in some regards, but when it comes to psychology and development and archetypes and old, old stories and where we come from and where we should go, he's, he's really got a handle on things. So his book, Maps of Meaning, The Architecture of Belief, is really good. And if you follow uh, Nevermind Who Listens on Instagram, you'll notice that I pull sometimes from his 12 Rules for Life, an antidote from antidote of chaos for chaos uh, for some of the quote images that I develop and design check them both out and I think it really speaks to this juxtaposition of 
the masculine and feminine development within ourselves. Reaching beyond the possible meanings and applications of the song, we can find flexibility in its presentation to clients, given their needs. This song is in some ways viewed by music therapists as an easy and surface-level song for evocation of a client's feelings of isolation or rejection, steering clear of York's original intent in writing the song. Most clients and clinicians I've spoken to view this song as being sang from the perspective of a rejected young person, lovesick and pining for their recently ended relationship. The song works for that, and it's useful in setting up a songwriting to maybe promote positive self-esteem, empowerment, or even acknowledgement of flaws and how to work through them. I've used it when appropriate in those regards, and it's effective in doing so. The song is so popular because of how relatable it is at that surface level. Everyone has felt outcasted, and if not that, then everyone has felt rejection, or at least experienced it. There are some folks out there whose ego will not let them feel such things. These points are all likely the reasons for the song's huge success. It's a catchy tune, four chords, popular edgy rock group, and lyrics deeply connected to the inner voice of someone feeling not so great about themselves, you know. The same formula for every song on the Billboard 100 I don't think York understood what he was tapping into, and I'm willing to bet most people who create impactful art don't realize it in the moment either. We have to ask, if they did realize it, would it be impactful at all? Is not part of the allure of art and music the fact that we can draw meaning out of it in unexpected ways? Furthermore, that the same person can draw different meanings at different points in their life? That we can draw connections where the writer may not have intended? Isn't this why the arts are so important? The questioning spirit is one of the reasons we create. It's also one of the reasons that lyric analysis can be so impactful for music therapists. One skill that I always impart on music therapy students I supervise in mental health settings is to approach everything in the session with curiosity. Oftentimes, it's the students that are nervous in these settings because they're fearful of saying the wrong thing or fearful that they're not pushing the client enough. Using curiosity tactfully can alleviate this and even elevate the processing skills of the student and therapist pretty quickly with little practice. If we approach our clients with curiosity, then not only are we allowing space for discussion in a non-threatening way, we're allowing the client to further process their experience by possibly rephrasing and at the very least revisiting their ideas and expressing them. Ask questions that will assist your client in giving you more information about what they are experiencing. Sometimes clients need you to be more direct, so be mindful of that as well. But I find that curiosity is a very, very helpful tactic in approaching these verbal processing uh, parts of sessions. So, how do I use this song for perception switches? Typically, I play and sing the song live for groups and clients, but for the podcast, 
please enjoy Radiohead playing their tune. Imagine in this group that each person has a copy of the lyrics, and they've been prompted to mark anything in the lyrics that seems meaningful in the moment, and to take any notes for questions in the margins of the page. Also encourage clients to sing along. And now imagine that I'm using this for clients with eating disorders. Let's give the song a listen, and then I'll review it line by line. special I wish I was special but I'm a 
love this song I hardly listen to it in my own time anymore but every time I hear it I'm reminded of just how much better this original version is than any cover I've heard uh, there's just something about Tom's falsetto there at the end that makes it a little more enjoyable for me with clients I allow about 20-30 seconds of silence after I've hit the last chord and I allow the space for the energy and aesthetics that I just presented in this music to breathe a little bit. And if none of the clients speak first, I generally ask the group to put aside their personally and emotional connections with the music and ask them to tell me what the story of the song is. Not using any deep analysis, just tell me what happens in the lyrics. For this song, the usual is, as I've mentioned before, some guy gets dumped, and he can't shake the feelings he has for the person. He's blaming himself and his weirdo persona for the separation. He's put the person that he loves on a pedestal and himself in a low place, and that's where he feels he belongs. Once clients move through this, I ask individuals to share any notes they've taken or lyrics they want to highlight as important and I encourage them to speak about how it might relate to their process. It's rare that the theme of this discussion moves beyond failed relationships or the feelings of rejection or outcasting. We discuss the hows and whys, and I allow the timing of the discussion to feel as though it's coming to an end and that we're about to move on to another intervention. This part takes practice as you're not actually moving on to something different. You're about to drop the perception bomb. I feel that this shift in energy opens the client up for vulnerability and allows what I'm about to tell them to have more of an impact. So once everyone is shared, I give space, about 10 seconds or so, and I ask the group if I may share another perception. No group has ever declined this offer, but if they do, I move on to the next intervention. If they don't, here's what I give the group, almost word for word. What if I told you that this song is not one person singing to another? What if this song was about someone singing to their self, standing in the mirror, the verses represent the internal dialogue between a person and their eating disorder voice. When you were here before, couldn't look you in the eye. This is a person standing in the mirror, unable to bear what they're going through. Could be shame, could be realization, could be the feeling of trapped. They can't look at themselves. They can't look at where they've come, where they've allowed this eating disorder voice to take them. You're just like an angel 
Your skin makes me cry. The push and pull of positivity and negativity between the eating disorder voice lifting you up and then dragging you down. You float like a feather in a beautiful world. It's a nod to the false feelings of euphoria. Could also be a nod to any changes in your body that you may be experiencing. I wish I was special. You're so fucking special. The desire to become who the eating disorder wants you to be. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. The feelings of unworthiness. As the eating disorder has set impossible standards, you'll only meet through turmoil and a false sense of security. Consider how you might achieve those goals without your eating disorder leading the way. What is it that you want? I don't care if it hurts. I want to have control. Eating disorders, like a lot of other mental health disorders, are based in control. Emotions. Food. Not allowing others to see emotional distress with food. Not allowing others to see your emotions. Controlling relationships. I want a perfect body. I want a perfect soul. The eating disorder uses your body as means to perpetuate itself. You have a perfect soul already. You are more than your body. You are deserving. I want you to notice when I'm not around. You're longing for connection because you're married to this eating disorder that seeks to only destroy you. You're so fucking special. I wish I was special. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. She's running out again. She's running out. She run, run, run. Your eating disorder as you leave it behind. It's calling you back each time you do well. Don't let it slow you down. Don't let it keep you from continuing on your treatment journey or your recovery. Whatever makes you happy. Whatever you want. Lapses happen. And this is what it's like to give in. You feel defeated, but rest assured, you are not. You spent so much of your time with this voice telling you what makes you happy. And when you take time away from it to find new things to make you happy, or revisit the things that made you happy before your eating disorder, the allure of the eating disorder can revisit you and tempt you. We are not perfect beings. And you'll be tempted over and over again. You'll overcome this because you were more than your eating disorder. You're a person deserving of a life not centered around something that wants to kill you. You are beautifully flawed and important. You are special and you are worth it. You're so fucking special. I wish I was special. But I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell am I doing here? I don't belong here. I don't belong here. You don't belong in front of the mirror shaming yourself and spending time in distress. You belong in your life making choices for life and not for death. 
spending time in chaos and in order. The eating disorder is all or nothing. The eating disorder is all order, which brings all chaos in every other aspect of your life. It is your responsibility to bridge that gap and allow for some of both chaos and order. Allow the chaos to give meaning to order and meaning to all the things in your life. Do not allow the eating disorder to take these things away. Life is not all or nothing. Then I allow for discussion of these ideas and I close the session. I might take the next session to revisit the idea and offer the opportunity to share additional thoughts before moving on to the next thing. Maybe even follow up with a discussion and songwriting using Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. Use that for empowerment. Lots of potential to take the hopeful momentum in this perception shift and use it for change. Uncomfortable, powerful change. The possible release of potential emotional energy may be there. Hopefully, you've even stirred something within your clients to where when you see them the next time, you're dealing with kinetic energy. They've started moving. How are you going to keep them moving? You can find Nevermind Who Listens on Instagram at Nevermind Who Listens. Also, find us on Patreon and consider contributing to the show. Patreon.com slash N-M-W-L for Nevermind Who Listens. The show is written, produced, and recorded by me, your host, Dean Quick. I've also composed the music for the show. And if you like the music, uh, becoming a patron on Patreon is a way to get copies of the music by itself. Thank you so much for the support I've received for the show, and I hope you'll continue listening.